Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Make Language Great Again. I am very delighted to introduce one of my best friends, Pete Karma. Pete is an amazing human being. He has been there for me so many times. And we agree or disagree. And the beautiful thing about Pete is that friendship always prevails. And it doesn't matter whether we agree on something or disagree on something. Pete is one of those people with whom I can agree passionately or argue passionately or get at each other's throats. And in the end, it's all good. One of the amazing things that Pete does is that he is a heartfelt, sincere, and genuine supporter of indie music and indie musicians. He runs a blog called Street Cred Music, and he puts his heart into that. He puts his soul into that. I think I am going to be in agreement with many musicians from New York and other cities and other places uh, who would say that Pete is one of their favorite people on the planet. He is a real friend. When he supports you, he supports you for real. It's not bullshit. Pete. Is there anything that you want to say about yourself? Uh, you did a pretty good job. Uh, I'm a nonprofit supporter of indie music, mostly women, and uh, I'm politically opinionated. I've been involved in the 60s demonstrations and the 70s, so I'm ready for you. <laughs> good. I think you bring so much to the plate with your stories, because especially in the American culture of today, the attention span is like... A fruit fly and people forget immediately and people have no idea what things were like even 10 years ago 20 years ago and needless to say much longer ago so if you want to start with just talking about how you were growing up i grew up i was born in 1944 i grew up in the 50s in the bronx uh unfortunately i grew up in poverty so i didn't really get the whole grasp of the 50s. I mean, I lived in one neighborhood and I didn't leave that neighborhood until I was, oh God, I don't know, 15, 16 years old. But the, the, the way of living was so much easier then. I mean, every, every neighborhood had their own grocery store, their own drugstore, their own shoemaker, their own tailor. It was all within a one or two block area. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, and it was, it was a neighborhood of 80% black and 10% Puerto Rican and 10% mixture of everything else. But the way of life was so much easier. Um, for instance, uh, I remember I would go to the grocery store. My mother would send me and I would tell the grocer to just put it on the bill. And he would write it in a little notebook. And at the end of the week, my father or mother would go in and pay the bill. And everybody knew everybody. And we kind of policed each other. If strangers were in the neighborhood, Somebody would know or somebody would know them. It was a much simpler way of life. And if you look, want to look at the bigger aspect, as I look back, people in public life were held accountable, which I think is what's missing today. Uh, for instance, if a politician were caught uh, or accused of molesting a woman, a woman or accused or caught uh, passing phony money, bouncing checks, being involved like a senator being involved in a business and then voting for that business uh, to legislate to help that business, that would be an automatic resignation. I mean, no, nobody would want to face that. But today, that's the norm. And it, it, they've just taken over today. The rich, the top 1%, 5%, they're, they're not held accountable and they know it. The 50s, led to the 60s because the 50s was such an easy way of life 
And, you know, war was almost like acceptable. We had just come out of World War II. We had the Korea War going. And I think well, sort of what's happening now, like the people are becoming enlightened by social media. They realize now what's going on. They can get instant information. That wasn't the case in the 50s, but the people got worn out. And the 60s revolution came and Jim Crow was an issue. Women's rights was an issue. Voting rights was an issue. The environment became an issue. And people re rebelled. And that brought in the 60s and the 50s, that time of, you know, leave it to Beaver with the mom at home and the pop out working and the kids at school. It kind of vanished right around the mid-60s. When we talked about protesting around Vietnam, something that came up in our conversations before is that people did not really get engaged in, pro in protesting heavily until it was the middle-class white kids going to war. I can tell you, I'm a living example of that. I grew up in the South Bronx, and wherever you were born, that was the draft board you were assigned to. So even after I had moved out of the South Bronx, my records were still in the draft board for the South Bronx. And the South Bronx at that time was a lot of blacks and Hispanics, and a lot of them were out of work. So they were being drafted for the war. That was, a, that was the way it was done. If you're out of work, hey, let's get this guy. He's out of work. So they all went first. The first uh, half a million or so were probably minorities. But then when... The war really got out of hand, and they started drafting white, middle-class kids. Then the white parents said, wait a minute, there's a war going on. My son is going to war. And that's when the groundswell really took shape. It reminds me kind of, of how, for example, musicians were really complaining about tech industry. Ten years ago, like before that, but nobody really cared. And everybody said, oh, you know, like stop whining, get a job. And then when the same paradigm started impacting other people, like journalists, then journalists said, oh, wait a second, Silicon Valley is not that amazing. But it actually took personal bleeding. Before that, nobody cared. It was just those little whiny musicians who cares about them, go get a job. And envy was playing out because, you know, musician is supposed to be like somebody who's free, who is money for nothing and all that. Typically, that invokes envy because people are supposed to be miserable at their jobs and hate their lives. So nobody cared about musicians until it started happening to other industries. And then it became an issue and then there's still fragmentation. So it's fascinating. It's happening in every industry. The sad part of it, this is supposed to be America and they're killing innovation. And without innovation... A society can't succeed, it can't excel, it can't grow. I mean, it, it's stagnant. And I think that's what we're seeing today. That's why the music, I mean, there's great music out there if you want to search for it. But the music that they're force-feeding us is, excuse my language, it's trash for the most part. It's trash. It's controversial. It's rowdy. It's profanity. not controversial. It's 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 not controversial though. Like <laughs> <laughs> it sells. It sells because they force feed it to us. You know, it's it's like politicians. They get there's two parties and they force feed us who they want, and we don't have a choice. Well, we do, but it's it's a dead end street to go down that choice. You know, like a third party candidate. Or well, you know, like we've like had that. this conversation yeah. many times. Like to my senses, uh, and it is deeply disturbing and saddening. Is that uh, for two decades now, America has been 
pretty much turning into the Soviet Union that I vaguely remember, or even the Soviet Union from my parents' time or earlier. It's that started like way, way, way before now. I, I it started was pro- probably it started happening after nine eleven when the country was in such shock. No, it started before that. It, uh, I think I think we we've talked about this before also. I think if you wanted to pinpoint a time in America when it became divisive, it became red or blue, and it became in control of the top five percent is the Reagan era. Now, I don't lay it all on him, but he started it. He crushed the labor unions. He was the first one to say, "No, no, no! You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps." We're not going to let you go to college, but you got to make it on your own. You know, we're, we're, it's too expensive to go to college, but you better get a job. He was the first one to put that attitude in, and then Karl Rove followed him. You know, and the, the misinformation, political attack ads became commonplace right around that time of the Reagan era. I think, if you want to put your finger on it, how was it before that? It was legitimate politics. I voted Republican in the 60s and 70s because there were Republicans who were liberal. There were Republicans who were moderate. There were Democrats who were conservative. Now, they, they, one has a red shirt, the other one has a blue shirt, and never the twain shall meet. They can't wait, agree on anything. Wait a second. So you're saying that before they actually had individual personalities and their platform depended on the personality and it was fine they were not like talking points if you look at any legislation today unless it's something uh one in a million shot it's going to be voted on on party lines that wasn't the case before the 80s the democrats would get 40 votes and they would get 25 republicans to vote with them because the issue meant something to their constituency that is gone that 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 the Reagan era definitely chopped that like a butcher block right in half. Said no, no more of that. If you're a Republican, you've got to be a, a right winger. If you're a Democrat, you've got to be a liberal. So that that's I, I, that's the thing that boggles me the most. You look at a, a House vote, House of Representatives. You'll see 283 Republicans all voted the same way on the last 10 issues. Try and put 280 people in a room. And, and say, look, we're voting on, is the sky blue? You won't get 283 votes, but yet the Republicans get 283 votes. Uh, it, it's mind-boggling to me. It's amazing. People are dying. People are going homeless. People are starving. Kids are starving. Uh, kids are going to bed hungry. 50 million people out of work. And they are celebrating at their conventions. I mean, w- what, what recourse do we have, really? What do we have except carve our own little niche out in life and try to paddle along? Well, I think, and I don't know whether you'll agree with me on that, because I, 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 I despise proper politics with passion. But I think right now we do have two right-wing parties, and the disagreements are mostly cosmetic. You know, democracy is for those who participate, and in the last election, 40 million people didn't vote. So. Well, you know, like my stance on that, I think that at, at this point, as far as voting between two parties, it barely ma- makes any difference at all. And, you know, you, you, we can agree or disagree, but I think functionally they're both working for 
overlapping sets of corporations and the talking points are different so they appeal to different emotions or but in like functional they do about the same thing so yeah bo both parties want the status quo I and mean, trump has exaggerated it because he's a maniac uh you know he, he, it, removing trump will be a plus but it won't be a big plus we're not going to get uh, universal health care. We're not going to get $15 minimum wage. We're not going to get an all-out attack on the environment to improve the environment. The only thing we'll do is we'll get rid of Trump. But yeah, you're right. It, they, they both want to keep control. That's that's what they want. They want our tax dollars. <clears throat> Who's in well, control of our tax dollars? Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell? That, that's the argument. Well, well, over here, I'm far more cynical than you because I think that like the only thing that is different about Trump really is that he does not hide the rot. And he actually, he is a social media star and he acts in real life like, you know, social media stars act on social media. But again, functionally, the only thing that he's doing different is he's not hiding the corruption. Others are as corrupt, but they hide it. I don't, uh, yeah, corrupt, yes. But I don't think we'd have kids in cages. I don't think we'd have Muslim bans. I, I don't think we'd have uh, him telling the cops to crush people, crush the black people and uh, giving ice, sending ice to barge into people's homes and deport them. I don't I think that's a product of Trump. Absolutely. Uh, well, as an immigrant who was in detention during Bush, I beg to differ. I think the only thing, again, he did is make it more visible. And the things that others were hiding and kind of hush-hush and smiling on the surface, he's almost proudly touting it. But this is something that ultimately, again, like, I don't even think we have real elections, but... Bush, Bush welcomed the Muslims after 9-11. He made a speech telling them everything's cool. And I don't think we had, you know infants being taken away from their parents at the border. We had, yes, we had a lot of immigrants that were being detained. And, but I think, I think this is, this is the, um, the horror show of a president, what we have in Trump. Well, again, as somebody who was in detention during Bush, I beg to differ. Going back to uh, less contentious topics, one of the stories that I really appreciate you telling is the relationship between the police and people in the neighborhood, as you remember it, versus now. Well, when I grew up, you know, the cops walked a beat. They walked a beat in New York City. Uh, you know, on Christmas Day, we would have the cop on the beat come in and have, uh, you know, a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and so, something to eat. And all they had was a whistle. Oh, for, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. For, for real? For real? They, I mean, they didn't have weapons at all? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, as far as communication, they only had a whistle. They had a gun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But they didn't have a patrol car. They didn't have a walkie-talkie. So they were out there. They were, they were literally the front line. And... You know, you would never, I have never, and I grew up in the ghetto. I never saw one incidence of police abuse. They would just try to settle it and say, look, get the fuck out of here, kid. Go home. Stop causing trouble. Get upstairs. I know your mother. You know, it, it, the first thing would not be a gun drawn or a taser shot in somebody's face. They, they didn't wear bulletproof vests. They didn't wear helmets. So, yeah, it's been, it's <laughs> There's been quite a change there. We have, we have a military now. We don't have police. What do you think caused the change? What do I think caused it? Well, there were, you know, there were the riots of the 60s. And whenever there's a crisis, government finds a way to get something they want over on us, like the Patriot Act with 9-11. And when the riots came, all of a sudden, 
oh, we got we to gotta give the police bulletproof vests. We got to give them armored cars. We got to give them helmets. Then they got all the stuff from the Iraq war. They, you know, we had to, the government had to sell it. So they sold it to the police departments at bargain prices. They sold them training. And uh, it's just, I, I don't know. I think it's the, the upper echelon maybe wants that because they have the most to lose. So maybe they want that strong police force, but it, it has backfired. And, you know, you, you get stopped for a traffic light. Now you could die. That was that was unheard of. Maybe maybe down in Mississippi or Louisiana years ago, but never in a major city. That would uh, they they wouldn't even stop you for for a traffic violation where I lived. What what's the why? I'm not going to arrest this guy. He okay. So his blinker's not working. Let him go for Christ's sake. You know, it, it, the whole mindset has changed. Become militarized, and you know when you have somebody. Let, let's take George Bush, for example. I, I'm not a Bush fan. I'm not anybody's fan. But he sent us to war for oil. And there was something happened at that moment that said, what are we going to do now to push up our position? He had sent, you know, 40,000 casualties in Iraq, plus, you know, a couple of hundred thousand Iraqis killed and a couple of million refugees created. He had to do something. The militarizing of the police, I think, started with Bush and Cheney. That was their base, the Tea Party, the strong, the law enforcement, you know, weaponize everything. I think that's when it really took off to, to gather votes. You know, they had nothing else to run on. So it was the law and order enforced the police. And I think that's when it really took off. But, you know, I'm curious. So back when you were growing up in the Bronx, so you're saying that the police officers, they knew families, they knew mothers of the kids who were maybe getting in trouble. So were they from the neighborhood, actually? Some of them were, or they were from a neighborhood within walking distance. Uh, they, were, they didn't live on Long Island. They didn't live in Connecticut. They didn't live in New Jersey. They, they might have been from another neighborhood, maybe a mile away, two miles away. Some were from the neighborhood. I knew some of them. My family was, was New York PD. My brother, my uncles, my aunt, uh, and they all lived within walking distance. So, yeah, that, that played a big part. Plus, you know, you have, if you're walking a beat, you have to have some contact, some human relationship with the people who you're serving. Otherwise, they'll either hate you, they won't pay attention to you, or they'll, they'll you know, you'll, you'll be in trouble. So you, you're, you're walking there every day, you're all alone. So you've got to have a camaraderie with some of the people. Well, I have a theory that, assuming there's a desire to fix problems, which is questionable uh, about that in a second, but I think that a lot of the things could be fixed, not so much with money, but with having officers coming from the same neighborhood they're policing, and this way, it's much harder to be an asshole because if genuinely, if you know the person's mother, then if you do something to the kid, you'll have to look her in the eye and that's pretty hard. So I, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I think I remember sometime in the 70s or the 80s, they made a, a rule that they tried to make a, a law that the, to be a cop in New York City, you had to live within a city. I don't remember if that passed and then got overturned or it just never got voted in. But I, I remember they did try to make that a regulation for being on the police department. Well, I mean, like, it would be good if they were actually from the neighborhood they're policing, because this way you're a part of the village, and this way it's much harder. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And, you're gonna, and you will be held responsible. Your neighbor will know 
if you stood on somebody's neck, that that's a friend of theirs for eight minutes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That that would go hand in hand. You, of course, you're always going to need a, a reinforcement division to come in if anything really big happens. But yeah, that would be ideal. That would actually solve so many problems. And the real problem is that the people upstairs, they do not want to solve problems. They actually prefer problems to become bigger. And something was really bugging me about the, well, I would say the forces seemingly behind the Define the Police. And it seems like the real movers of that, they're using the people and the actual problems. But the real forces behind it are tech companies and, uh, you know, high-end contractors, security contractors, top-level people who are trying to sell AI. So they want to completely disrupt the current system using the actual problems, but they love, love it that they're problems because this way they can rile people up and then remove the competition in the physical world and instead give us AI surveillance, which is something from hell that is like worse than what we have right now. That's also been a political trick for decades. I organized unions and I remember when we would have a strike or a demonstration, management would send people down there to cause trouble. And then they could film that and say, look, these union guys, they're breaking windows. They're, they're, they're crashing cars. They're, you know, and it wasn't. And it is so hard to track because a lot of it is happening seemingly and i've heard about that in the unions when somebody would send not necessarily even to cause violence but just to infiltrate and to completely confuse people and it is so easy to do the divide and conquer and you know that's my pet peeve because people naturally try to get along and it's happening internationally everywhere like communities who have gotten along for like decades and for centuries then politicians come in and they make people hate one another and it leads to actual problems. It's like geopolitical stupid games. However, people on the ground are actually suffering. That is so, so bad. What the unions did uh, back in the 40s and 50s when, when management would send their goons in to cause trouble, when those people were arrested, they would log it. So if somebody got arrested in a union dispute in New York City, and then two weeks later they got arrested in a union dispute in New Orleans, now you can trace, now you can say, hey, this guy's a troublemaker. This guy's a paid goon. So, but that's that's not going to happen today. This is fascinating. I didn't I didn't know about the logging part. Yeah. Oh, there, there was a. If you ever have a minute, read about the Timken strike. T i m k i n. It was in Ohio. It was it was almost a civil war between these goons that management sent in and the union people. It was that that was the one that highlighted this whole uh, this whole thing we're talking about with the goons and the labor and management. Timkin, T-I-M-K-I-N. Thank you, I'll check it out. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, once again, this is Pete Karma, an amazing human being. And if you want to also mention where people can find you. Yes, uh, streetcredmusic.blogspot.com. And I'm, I'm Pete Karma on Instagram and on Facebook. And if you want to see some beautiful women making some beautiful music, check us out. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. It's been a pleasure.